So back in the spring, Mark and I trained and ran uh, the Las Vegas Half Marathon. I spent all winter training for that thing. Uh, that was the last time I ran. <laughs> Been waiting on cooler weather. Uh, so if God wants me to run, he'll make it cooler again. Uh, but interestingly, anybody ever trained for a race, a run like that? Anybody ever put the effort in? I know my parents have. Uh, anybody else connect with that? Nobody. Wow, we need to do like a run as a group, train for something. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know, half marathon is 13.1 miles. Uh, so 13.1 miles. Um, and, and I look back on that race, and I was like, the first nine miles were pretty awesome. Uh, actually, um, I always start off slow to make sure I got something left in the tank when we get later. Uh, but then somewhere around mile three or four, um, I know it was slow for Mark, but it was fast for me. Um, and it just felt like we were getting stronger and felt like we were getting better. And actually, um, past, um, so my sister-in-law's sister, uh, they're athletes, and she was running, and a pastor, somewhere around mile six or seven, started to feel real good about myself. Uh, and things were on the uptrend. Uh, and it, it was pretty awesome first nine miles of the race. And then, Mark, what was the turning point of the race for me? The bathroom break. The dreaded bathroom break. Um, ruined my whole day. Just ruined everything. Uh, my sister-in-law's sister passed me during that bathroom break. I never regained my composure, never regained uh, my stamina. And I mean, the, the last four miles were a train wreck. And I almost died. Uh, just, it was horrific. Um, uh, it was the first time that I almost thought we were going to walk. I know walking may have been faster than what we were doing. Um, and Mark tried to encourage me about mile 11. He was like, hey, you see that girl in the yellow shirt? And the next mile, we're going to pass her. That didn't happen. It just, she kept getting further and further away. I'm like, couldn't you pick somebody other, less deflating than that? Um, so I enjoyed nine miles of really good, excellent running, but what's that really matter if the last 4.1 kick your tail? What's the value of nine miles on the front end that are great if the last four destroy you? Um, in, in men's DNA group this week, uh, uh, in our DNA groups where we're uh, sharing a burrito and discussing the scriptures and applying it to our lives, we talk about a lot of things, and in any given week we'll hit a lot of things. But this week, one of the things I threw out in our discussion uh, was the concept of finishing well. It was a not long ago, something shifted in my mindset, something shifted in my perspective to where I would say over the last number of years, probably from 25 to 35, I had maybe an overconfidence uh, that was just kind of came out of just a zealousness and enthusiasm for what God was doing in my life, right? Which is an awesome thing. God was revealing himself, showing me things, teaching me things, leading me in things, and it was incredible for about 10 years. But I would say as an overflow of that, maybe a little bit of overconfidence saying, 
Um, nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to slow me down. Uh, these people that have slowed down, how on earth could they do so? Because out of just the enthusiasm for what God was doing in my life, and something shifted a number, a few years ago, two or three years ago, and, and, and I was describing to the men that there, uh, we went from um, maybe an overconfidence to an awareness. Overconfidence to awareness. Now, you can be confident in the work of the Lord in your life. He is faithful even when you're not. You can have great confidence in Him. But I'm talking about internally for myself. I went from being maybe a little overconfident in myself to aware of myself. Um, and, and out of that awareness, I realized that just like that half marathon, life is a long race. Right? I know life is short. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. But in some ways... It's long, and we've got to pace ourselves, and we have to have the end in mind as we're somewhere in the middle. We have to have the end in mind. If we're going to finish well, then we've got to start well, and we've got to pace ourselves well, and we've got to have a little bit of clarity in that. Awareness that life is long, and starting, starting strong can be easy. Any one of us can start strong. Like, when we're, race, when we're running races... I do this with confidence. I start off really slow, below my pace. Like if I'm going to run an eight and a half minute mile on average, my first two miles are going to be nine and a half. Why? Because the 3,000 people I'm starting with are going to take off really fast at a six and a half minute mile pace. And at about mile three, I'm going to pass them all. Anybody can start strong. But finishing strong is a whole different thing. Anybody can start strong, but finishing stronger is a whole other thing. Tyler read for us a moment ago Psalm 71. Psalm 71. This is my, probably my oldest daughter's artwork, if I was going to assume. I used to get grouchy about it because we needed to present ourselves well. And then I'm like, you know what? Just is what it is. We've got four kids, let's, let's show that well. Um, Psalm 71 uh, that, that Tyler read earlier, is a, it's a passage that Shelly and I have held dear and we've had um, a significance to it in our family, if you will, uh, in our family and in our ministry over the last number of years. Um, but when I looked at it again this week as we're doing a series on different psalms, Psalm 71 hit me different this week as I put it into context and I understood what was going on and what caused the author to write it. It changed the way I view it. Completely shifted the meaning that I carry and the weight that I carry from Psalm 71. So I want to share that with you this morning. Psalm 71, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to it. If you've got a phone, you can download a free Bible app. The best one is the YouVersion Bible app. It's best, not because I said so, because it seems to be the most user-friendly. Um, so you can go that route as well. But Psalm 71, the author by many is, is assumed to be King David. Many people assume King David to be the author, and I'm going to go with that this morning because I think it fits. Not fits what I want to tell you, but I think it fits Like when you consider did he write this or not. Um, so King David, 
at approximately 61 years of age. That's one thing when you're reading the scriptures and you're reading about somebody's life, sometimes we lose track that they're young and now they're older. (laughs) And, And this is helpful to not just consider that David wrote this, but King David wrote this at 61 years old. And he lived to be 70. So this is the end of his life. This is the last decade of King David's life. Um, So at approximately 61 years of age, David's son, who is Absalom, David's son rebels against him uh, and he, he stirs up a large following of people so that he can overthrow his father and take the throne of Israel. He wants to overthrow his father who is king of the nation of Israel and he wants to steal his power, steal his throne and take over the nation. You think you got family issues. So Absalom, as his father is aging, stirs up a crowd of people. He gets a large following. He creates an army so that he can overthrow his father. Um, And he wants to become king. It's probable... Here, so just for a very simple map, here we have Jerusalem over here. It's probable that David and his army retreated to the east side of the Jordan River, to the east side of the Jordan River where he wrote this, and David is waiting here on the east side of the Jordan as his army goes and engages with Absalom's army, and they fight till one of the armies is dead. And David, over here waiting to hear the results of his army battling against his son, and he writes this psalm. So just imagine that scenario as we consider the text this morning. I want to read to you another portion of that psalm so we can draw out maybe a smaller section. Let's start in verse 9, and I want to read through verse 18. Don't discard me in my old age. As my strength fails, do not abandon me. Some of our psalms have been more of a song. This one is more of a prayer. David waiting to hear the results of his army and his son going to battle Praying to the Lord, do not discard me in my old age. As my strength fails, do not abandon me. For my enemies talk about me, and those who spy on me plot together, saying, God has abandoned him. Let's chase him and catch him, for there is no one to rescue him. God, do not be far from me. My God, hurry to help me. May my adversaries be disgraced and destroyed. May those who intend to harm me be covered with disgrace and humiliation. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell about your righteousness and your salvation all day long, though I cannot sum them up. I come because the mighty acts of the Lord God. I will proclaim your righteousness alone. God, you have taught me from my youth, and still I proclaim your wondrous works. Even while I am old and gray, God, now do not abandon me while I proclaim your power to another generation, your strength to all who come. Verse 16, he said, I come because the mighty acts of the Lord, 
and I will proclaim your righteousness alone. Somebody help me out. Actually, if you're new here, we talk a lot to each other. Um, that's going to be a lot easier when fall actually hits and our air conditioner kicks down. But help me out real quick. Give me some bullet points. Uh, what are the major victories of David's life? What are the major victories of David's life? Hmm? Goliath. He defeats the giant Goliath uh, at about age 15 or so. The giant that everybody was afraid of, that when Goliath came out and taunted the nation of Israel, they shook in their boots and they became cowards and they would not engage this man in war. And David, the scripture tells us, defeated him with a sling and a stone. In the name of the Lord, I come to you. And he had victory. This little boy at about age 15. What else? Give me one of David's victories in life. United the tribes. He was uh, uh, leader uh, of Israel, the nation of Israel. He was um, not only, Sean said he united the tribes, but he also conquered the land. He got them into the promise and, and they began to live out the fullness of what God had promised them under his leadership. So he united the nation, gathered them in the promised land, and, and was significant in that part of their history. He was a huge leader and warrior and conqueror for the nation of Israel in fulfilling the promises of God. Right? Anything else? Highlights? Victories of David's life? Brought the ark back. And we talked a number of months ago about bringing the ark back. He brought the presence of God to be central in those people's lives again. Right? Um, so he didn't bring back just uh, some inanimate object that didn't have any relevance. But the nation knew that by having the ark, they had the presence of God with them. And when he put that in the middle of Jerusalem again, now their everyday life centered around the presence of God once again and his power. So this is David. These are his highlights. These are his victories. Mighty warrior, defeats Goliath, kills the lion and the bear. Uh, he's the leader and the warrior and the, the, the army general of Israel. He brings back the presence of God central to their lives again through the ark. He has had an incredible list of victories in his life. And then I followed that up by asking you this. What could these experiences do to a man? Like when you look at your resume, and at the top it says, I am King David. Here's what I've done. What can this experience do to a man? Arrogance. Hmm? Arrogance. Arrogance, potentially. You could begin to, quite the dude. Just look at my resume. Who wouldn't want me? Look what I've done. Right? And I'm not saying King David did that. But I'm saying, what can this do to a man? What else? What can this resume do to the heart and the mind of a man? Right? Start to rely on yourself. You're like, I whoop Goliath's tail. Who are the Philistines again? Let's go. And in fact, he did that. 
At times he wrestled against that. Let me count the number in my army, he said. Let's see how big it's gotten. Go, take a census. Right? And then you're like, dude, nobody, nobody from the name of God called you to do that. So we be, we, even David, we begin to see him wrestle with the potential of a resume like that. And, and that potential is, is big. So let's go to the other side of David's life. What about his failures? What's the list of David's failures? Adulterer. Add that to your resume. Adultery. So when you want to hide your adultery, you murder her husband so that nobody finds out. What else goes on his list of failures? These are the lesser known failures of David's life. Shelly and I sat on our patio and talked about these last night. When David had children who had uh, done the most horrific and sinful things, he had one of his daughters. Now, many wives, concubine, whole different story. But he had... Some of his daughters, one of his daughters was raped by one of his sons. And that wasn't David's failure. He didn't cause him to do that. But what did David do in response? Nothing. One of David's failures was his passive towards sin in his family. As a father, he was passive. When his sons needed to be disciplined and corrected, he didn't do anything. Another one of David's failures fits under the passive again. Passive to reconcile. He had broken family and sons that he could have went and reconciled with, but he chose not to. He kept them at arm's length. He stayed away from his family instead of going to and reconciling and amending his family he was passive once again. And it's incredible to look at his resume as a king and as a leader and then look at his resume in his home. And it's astounding to see that that's the same man. So what are these failures? What, what can these failures do to a man? They can destroy you. As much as these can begin to puff you up, if this were your resume, if you look at this resume as a man, as a husband, as a father, it might crush you. At 61, David proclaims God's righteousness only. He said in, in verse, uh, verse 16, I proclaim your righteousness and yours alone. Why? Because at 61, the clarity that David had, he said, although these could puff me up and I could begin to think really good of myself, I've also got this on my resume and I have no righteousness of my own to stand on. So I proclaim yours and yours alone. I am in a situation where my family is a wreck and you know whose fault it is? It's mine. 
My life is a wreck. You know whose fault it is? It's mine. But I still call on the name of the Lord and your righteousness to be my salvation. I have no righteousness of my own. At age 61, at age 31, I might have thought differently. But at age 61, I'm convinced that there's nothing righteous within me. Perspective creates clarity. Perspective creates clarity. And David, standing late in life, was able to look back on 61 years and have a significant amount of clarity concerning who he was and who God was. And that's the process that I feel like I've gone through in the last number of years. When you're 31 and you're walking in your victories, you may lack a little bit of perspective. But when you're 61 and you look back at the thing as a whole, you can see a little more clearly. And in that, you elevate the person of God and you may lessen what you bring to the table, increase what He brings to the table. Your trust is in Him and not in yourself when you have that clarity from perspective. Standing late in life, he looks backwards, sees the impact. Here's the two things that David sees the impact from. What he had done. What he had failed to do. Those are the two things that 61 years old he looked back, he saw the impact of all that he had done and all that he had failed to do. And that provided an incredible amount of clarity for him at this point in his life. It didn't matter what he had done at this point. All his victories were really irrelevant in this moment. But so were all his failures. Both of them irrelevant in this moment because he was dependent upon the righteousness of God alone, not of his own. Um, Age, and I want you all to get this. I'm going to write it just because it's important and some of us need to know it. Age, maturity, Age does not equal maturity. doesn't. Some of the most immature people I've known have been significantly older than me. Age does not equal maturity, yet the years hold potential to deepen our perspective, thus deepening our confidence in God's goodness. It holds, the years hold the potential, if we handle them right, if we look at them right, The years hold the potential to deepen perspective, thus deepening our dependence upon God's goodness. If we look at them right. If we look at them right. So what if you made a list of all your victories and failures? What if you made a list of all your victories and all the things you failed to do? All right, we're not going to make your list this morning. But I think that'd be a good thing to do. What would our resume say? Here's my wins. Here's what I've done. Here's my failures. Here's what I never did. What would that do to a man? How would that affect you? 
in isolation, if we do these things in a bubble, it will wreck you. If you made that list in a bubble in your room and you went home and you locked yourself up and you made that list and you just looked at it, most of you, most of us, would be wrecked by what we put on that list. Either by our pride or by our regret. But in light of God's deliverance, and this is where David stood, it didn't matter what was on this list, it didn't matter what was on this list, what mattered was God's deliverance. God delivered me from Goliath. God delivered us into the land. God delivered the ark back to us. Remember, they brought it to him. He didn't even have to earn it. He didn't have to fight. God delivered me from my sin. God delivered me from my evil. God delivered me from what I did not do that I should have done. And in this moment, as my son is wanting to rip the kingdom from my hands, I call upon the one who delivers me despite what I've done or haven't done. Perspective gives him that clarity. Despite all David done, had done or failed to do, God's deliverance to David over and over proves his power to every witness. Look at verse 17 with me. God, you have taught me from my youth And I still proclaim your wondrous works. You have taught me from my youth. Somewhere between around age 12, there was a a messenger that came to him, pulled him out of the sheep field and anointed him as the next king of Israel. (laughs) 12 years old, tending sheep. Get your boy out of the field. I'm going to anoint him as the next king of Israel. A few years later, I kill the giant. A few years later, I'm leading the nation. I'm in the king's room playing music for him, comforting him. I'm leading the army. I'm king over the nation. Over and over, God has delivered me. He's done these things. He's put me in these positions and he's given me victory. Over and over. You have taught me from the time I was a young youth to the time that I'm 61 years old. I look back and I see lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson of God's deliverance. And at 61 years old, he had a long resume of God's deliverance. He could sit back and tell you story after story after story. Um, I don't know, have you guys ever known just someone who is a great storyteller? I mean, just those people that have the the knack of just sitting and telling a story, capturing the attention of the listeners and just just making it real, making it good. Um, I think that a lot of people who are good storytellers um, have a good story because they've lived a life. They're telling you from their experience. When I was in high school, I was given the task of interviewing somebody that I knew. And I had to write a paper upon that interview. Um, and I interviewed Joe. I went and interviewed Joe. Joe had stories because Joe had lived. 
Not only had Joe lived, Joe lived the life that I wanted to live. Because Joe was a cowboy. Right? And when I was 16 years old and Joe was a cowboy, I wanted to hear his stories. He'd already lived the life that I wanted to live. He told us about, told me about his days as a bull rider. He told me about his days as a cowboy, about his horses. Joe just told me story after story. And he told me a story about his bad injury that ended his bull riding days and how he got beat up, left in the hospital, and that was it. That was the end of his days. At his table, Joe shared all that he had done and all that he failed to do. And in the end, I didn't see a beat-up old cowboy who was a has-been. saw a man that lived a life that I wanted to live. His stories captivated me. And I didn't see a broken down old man who limped to the table and told me about how it all came to an end. I saw a man who had lived. I saw a man who had courage. I saw a man who had a story, and I wanted a story. Despite all he had done or failed to do. You see the image of a man you want to become. That's what you see. Imagine sitting at David's table, sharing a meal with King David. Let me ask you this. How would his resume of God's deliverance, as he shares story after story at that table, how would that impact you? Not story after story of this is what I've done, this is what I failed to do, but in spite of who I am and in spite of what I did, here's how God's deliverance came. How would that impact you? And that's what you said. That's who God is in our lives. So what's interesting about what Mark's saying is that when I hear David tell his list of do, things he's done, things he failed to do, and what God delivered through despite any of those things, then I begin to picture who God is in my life too. And I think that's the, 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 the value of a good storyteller. When you sit at somebody like David's table, this is not about David. Because what you're doing is you're imagining your own things that you've done. You're imagining the own deliverance that you've received. You're imagining how, well, if, if God delivered him through that, then here's where I'm at. And how's my deliverance going to come? And it's not about David when you're sitting at his table, but you're, you're seeing the image of a man that you want to become. 
And it's not because David's good, we got a resume, but it's because God's good. And if God's good to David, God's good to me, and I want to see who he is in my life too. So we, our kids have, we, we have bookshelves full of storybook Bibles. And storybook Bibles are incredible because we get to share these stories in, in compact form with our kids so that we can, as they grow, put those stories in context to the scripture and give them a, a, a foundation that they can work with. The downside of storybook Bibles is kind of what Mark just said. In the storybook Bibles, sometimes you just get the, the clean picture of their life. The David was king. David had faith. David beat the giant. David did this. David did that. And then sometimes it can be misleading because David was a train wreck. <laughs> Most of your heroes in Scripture were train wrecks. Few of your people in Scripture finished well. Most of them had the wheels fall off at the end. Noah started really well, finished really bad. Many of our biblical heroes would not be heroes. None of them would be heroes without God's deliverance, despite all the things they did or failed to do. Right? So read your storybook Bible but understand that there's a messiness behind the scene. Yep. no deliverance yeah and that's the ticket is David had repentance repentance is 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 we've talked about before not laying in your bed saying God forgive me all the things I did wrong and then waking up the next day and repeating the same flaws repentance is having truth revealed to you saying I was wrong and now that I see what's right I'm going to turn to you God and I'm going to follow you and what's good and I'm heartbroken over what I did yesterday, redeem that, deliver me from myself as I follow you into a new truth. That's repentance. Repentance is baptism that says, I've lived a life without even considering who God is and what He wants in me, what He wants from me. But now that it's been revealed to me, I turn from as me and Brant were sitting in this room yesterday reading 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for everyone so that those who believe would no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died for them. And I'm like, Brant, if you're going to get baptized, I need you to understand this. Jesus died for you so that you would live for Him. That's repentance. 
You no longer live for Brant. You live for Jesus. Do you still want to get baptized? Because some days that's going to be easy and some days that's going to be hard. And me and mom, our role is to teach you how to do that when it's easy and when it's hard. You still want to do this? Yes. <laughs> that's repentance. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for Jesus. Why? Because he died for me. I'm turning from the selfish, me-centered to a Christ-centered life. And yes, David was delivered. Leslie and Brant are delivered because they have turned. David was delivered because when he was called out for adultery and murder, he turned. He turned. So now he says, now that I'm old and gray, this is where we've read this passage wrong for so long. Because I've always read this passage that says, even till I'm old and gray, do not abandon me until we proclaim your power to another generation. But in the context, I'm realizing now David's saying, now that I'm old and gray, don't abandon me. Don't quit on me now. We've been through so much. You have delivered me so many times despite myself or through myself, whatever the case may be, now that I'm old and gray, don't abandon me while I am proclaiming your power to another generation. We've always applied this a little bit off. God, be with us till we're old and gray as we proclaim. No, now that I'm old and gray, there's another generation sitting at my table wanting to see your power. Don't quit on me now. Don't stop now. Now I'm old and gray. Now I need you to deliver me again so that another generation can see it. So another generation can see it. The watching generation at David's life at 61 years old didn't see any of this. They didn't see Goliath fall. They didn't see him capture the promised land. They didn't see any of this. So David knew that if God left him and did not deliver him at 61 years old, an entire generation would take him and his God to be a fool. Now I'm old and gray. Don't leave me. Deliver me again so that the generation that's sitting at my table right now who didn't see any of that stuff, they can see this. And they'll know your power. They won't take me or you for a fool. They need to see it too. Every generation needs to see it. Every generation has to own it. Every generation has to move in it. The generation sitting at his table, I have no doubt that they saw an older man with a broken family, a questionable, shaky future, and a questionable past. I mean, what else were they supposed to see? Here's David, 61 years old, no longer in his prime. His family's a wreck. They're turning on each other. Who knows what he did in his past to create his present. That's what they see. But David knows, God, if you deliver me one more time in this scenario... They're not going to see anything I've done or anything I've failed to do. They're going to see the power of God and the deliverance that comes from the Lord. That's what they need to see. Despite everything I've done or everything I've failed to do, they need to see that. Not this old man who's made a wreck of it. They need to see that. Deliverance came to David. You can read it. I think it was 2 Samuel chapter 20-ish. 
Deliverance came, and for the last nine years of his life, David's throne remained, his nation stayed intact, and he passed it on to another generation. God delivered him again. And you're right, the, the Bible celebrates David after, to be a man after God's own heart. And we look at that and we're like, I don't get that, but it's everything that my mom just said. Not for what he'd done, despite what he failed to do. That was not why he was claimed to be a man after God's own heart. It's the theme of deliverance that came from God through his repentance. David is not celebrated for what he's done or what he failed to do. He's celebrated because he pursued God through all his faults and failures, wins and losses. He kept chasing after the throne of God. God kept delivering him. His power was manifested in David's life through David's deliverance. And we have left, strangely, strangely enough, despite all David did or failed to do, when we look at his resume, it's a train wreck. But we're left with the image of a man that we desire to become. Not because of what he did or what he failed to do, but because the power and deliverance of God was constantly manifested in his life. And who doesn't want that? When he tells his story, I want to be David. I want to see what he saw. I want to know God the way he knew God. We're about to go outside to celebrate deliverance and the lives of those who have been freed from sin and death. Not for what they've done and despite all they failed to do. Right? But because of what Jesus has done through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's where our deliverance comes from. We are not saved because of good works. We're saved because of what He has worked out on our behalf. That that we are sinners deserving death. He was sinless and He took our death upon Himself. And that He was placed in the grave and three days later by the power of the Father He was raised to life that you and I too may walk in a new life. Sitting down with Brant reading Romans 6 yesterday, we are buried with Him in baptism. We're buried with Him in baptism. That just as the Father raised Him to life, we too, by the power of the Father, may be raised to walk in a new life. Brant, what's it show when you go underwater? They're burying the old Brant. You're right, they're burying the old Brant. What's it show when you come out of the water? I'm a new Brant. By the power of God, I'm going to walk in His way. I'm going to walk with Him. You're right. It's going to be hard some days. It's going to be easy other days but you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk a new life through faith in Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has already done. And here's the thing, that when we go and we celebrate through the waters of baptism, this is the first story of deliverance of many that Leslie and Brant will have to tell. 
when they are 61 years old, facing another need for deliverance, they will have an entire resume and a huge amount of clarity as they reflect. Oh yeah, God delivered me when I was 24, when I was 28, when I was 33. He delivered me from this, from that. Oh, I, I train wrecked this and he delivered me. I followed him by faith in this and he delivered me. I cannot wait to sit at Brant's table when he's 50 years old, if I'm still ticking, and to hear all the stories of deliverance. This is just the first. This is just the first. But they're going to have an incredible resume by the time they're 61. Baptism, just like Psalm 71, communicates dependence upon the righteousness of God alone. It proclaims His wondrous works and it speaks both of those to every watching generation. Here's what I want for you. I try to give a little bit of application each week so that we understand how to take this and put it here. Um, As you watch these baptisms, here's what I'd ask you to do. Consider what story your life is telling. If I sit at your table, what story is it telling? They're telling a story of deliverance. What story is your life telling? Whether you're early in your race, whether you're in your mile 13, doesn't matter where you are. Here's the good news. That the legacy you leave and the story that you leave, for each and every one of you, that legacy is in front of you, not behind you. I promise you that. I promise you that. The story that is retold from your life has nothing to do with what you've done or failed to do. The legacy of faith that you leave, whether it's in the power of God or in the weakness of your failures, whatever story you're going to leave, it sits in front of you. It's in your future. It's where you go from today and how you apply this from today. None of what you left behind has any relevance for what you're going to leave behind. None of it. Because if you have nine years left and you live it fully free in the deliverance that comes through Jesus, then your kids and your grandkids are going to talk about that. They're not going to talk about what you screwed up when you were 30. They're going to talk about how God redeemed you when you were 60. Every one of us, whether young or old, early in our race or late in our run, your legacy is in front of you, not behind you. So watch these stories of deliverance and ask, what story am I telling in my table? Because the story that you're telling is going to be told for you time and time again after you're gone. It will. Man, I want my kids to tell songs and stories of deliverance. They can recall all the things I failed to do and all the things I did wrong. I don't care. The list is going to be long. (laughs) I want to tell how good and how faithful God was to deliver me in times of trouble, 
over and over and over again. We invite you to the sidewalk now. We're going to celebrate the deliverance that these two have received. Let's go out and celebrate with them right now.